Amen. Opening your Bibles tonight to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter number 23. Deuteronomy, chapter number 23, the fifth book in the Word of God. Deuteronomy, chapter number 23. And I want to preach to you on one verse tonight. I hope to be a help. I hope to be a blessing to you and an encouragement. There's a lot at risk in the day that we live in. You know, there was a time when uh, society was in such a way that you didn't have to, it seemed, do as much work and do as much parenting. Now, I know there's always been wickedness all over the earth, and I'm aware of that. But uh, there were places you could go and you could raise a family and you could build a church and... Uh, it seemed like the wickedness that was prevalent in society today was not present there. And, uh, but we live in a day now where we have to be constantly vigilant. Constantly vigilant. We live in a very dangerous generation today. And I believe we're going to get, we're going to see it become a lot more dangerous. But the danger that we're experiencing now is vastly different from the danger we're going to experience. You see, the danger we're going to experience, you'll see when they, when they start to come and, and uh, padlock doors, put guns to the head of Christians, uh, it'll thin the herd a lot. You'll find that uh, when we have to really mean it when we say we'd lay our life down for Jesus Christ, uh, a lot of the hypocrites and a lot of the phonies, uh, they'll go away. Amen? Uh, they won't be willing to stand when that type of persecution comes. You say, preacher, I thought that was the tribulation. Oh, no, during the tribulation, we won't be here. But I look for that to happen before the tribulation. I look for that sort of persecution to exist in the fairly near future. But the sort of danger that we have today is a danger of a society in which iniquity has become normal and when iniquity has become normal, conformity becomes iniquity. If you're trying to live and be like the world in this day that we live in, that's, that's going to mean you're going to have to do some things that will displease your Savior. And that's what's expected of us in the day that we live in. This is a fight that we're in. I mean, this is a real spiritual battle that we're in. If we would open our eyes to the spiritual goings-on about us, we would be very keenly aware that this is a spiritual battle. You say, Preacher, what do you mean by a spiritual battle? I mean, you know the way that uh, your blanket gets awful heavy Sunday morning? That's the spiritual battle. You know the way that it's a lot easier to cuss than it is to bless the Lord? That's the spiritual battle. You ever notice that temptation always seems to... Uh, formulate itself at the most opportune time for you to do the wrong thing, that's a spiritual battle. We are in a constant, and we are in a heated Christian battle and spiritual battle in the day that we live in. And, oh, it would help us if we would uh, adopt the principle found in 1 Peter 5, 8 of being sober and being vigilant. And this isn't my message. I'll get to that here in a moment. It's in my message but what does it mean to be sober and to be vigilant? Well, we think of someone being sober as being the antithesis of someone that's drunk. But being sober means much more than just not being drunk. In the Word of God, the word sober means to be aware. So the first thing you need to be is aware that there is a spiritual battle taking place. Aware that the devil wants to destroy your marriage, your home, your children, your grandchildren, 
He wants to destroy them. You have an enemy. You say, I didn't make that enemy. No, when you accepted Jesus Christ, uh, you know, the enemy of your friend became your enemy. And he hates you because he hates Jesus Christ. So we need to be sober. We need to be aware. But then what does it mean to be vigilant? It means to be watchful. In other words, we don't just need to know that there's a spiritual battle, but we need to watch the spiritual battle that's taking place around us. I very much believe in a spiritual realm. And I don't mean a spiritual realm in the sense of a different dimension either. I mean, I I believe in spiritual goings-on in the dimension that we exist and live within. I believe that if God so chose, He could pull the scales off of these temporal eyes. We would be shocked and amazed at the things going on in this world. We need to be keenly aware of that this evening. And we need to take the proper steps. Uh, you know, what do they say? To fail to plan is to plan to fail. How much more urgent would that be on the battlefield where you get no do-overs? And we're in a battle right now, so we need to plan And we need to determine that we're going to live in such a way that as these battles come our way, we're prepared, we're ready for them. Deuteronomy chapter number 23 tonight, I'd like to begin reading, well, I'll just read one verse to you this evening. In verse number 9, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse number 9 says, When the host goeth forth against thine enemies, then keep thee from every wicked thing. Let's read that once more. When the host goeth forth against thine enemies, then keep thee from every wicked thing. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time that you've given us this evening. I pray that the power of the Holy Ghost would move upon hearts. Lord, that he would do what only he can do tonight. Lord, we're we're oftentimes looking for you to give us liberty. But, Lord, help us tonight to give you liberty to work in our hearts and in our lives. Father, if there's any amongst us lost and undone, show them their greatest need, that need of Calvary. Any, Lord, that need a closer walk with thee, and surely all of us do, draw us closer in your will and in your grace. We'll be sure to thank you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. We find ourselves in the book of Deuteronomy reading the repetition of the law of the Old Testament law. God had given the Old Testament law already in the book of Exodus and in the book of Leviticus. And now the book of Deuteronomy is Moses at the end of his life repeating what has already been given. Now, some would say, preacher, we're not under the law, we're under grace. And I'd agree with you. We are under grace. But the book of uh, or 2 Corinthians, chapter number 10, tells us that these things were written for our examples and for our admonition. And so we can learn things from the Old Testament law, both through the practical impact and import of these truths, but also through the typical or uh, typological impact and import of these truths. You see, this was a very practical law given to the nation of Israel. This law, in a uh, very, very uh, particular way, pertained to those that were not necessarily part of the army, but those that would have remained behind. But I believe that this truth applied not only just to those that would stay behind, 
but to the entire nation of Israel, that when it was wartime, it was time to be vigilant. When it was wartime, it was time to keep yourself from the wicked things. There's much at stake, as already has been said, in this day that we live in. As a church family, there's much at stake. We have families in our church. We have young families in our church. They need prayer. You've got a young pastor. And it wouldn't matter if he was an old pastor. He'd still need prayer. But all the more, he needs prayer. You've got church families that are dealing with the loss of loved ones. Church families dealing with bodily sickness. Church families dealing with untold heartaches that many of us may not know anything about. It's time to be praying for one another. We're at war in this day that we live in. And we need to understand what that means. Some of you may remember and have grown up in a time, uh, certainly many that are here, if not most that are here, would have grown up while the Vietnam War would have been going on. Some of you Korean, some of you uh, during World War II. And you remember what it was when this nation was in wartime. It meant rationings. It meant people doing without. I think that's one of the things that we probably lost after World War II was a sense of national investment in a wartime effort. Then all of a sudden, you come along to Vietnam, and now it seems like we're, we're on either side of each other. But during World War II, there was a great sense of nationalism and patriotism in this uh, country. People did without. Uh, when, uh, there, there was young men going whenever they heard things going on in that great war, if any war is great. There were young men flooding into recruitment stations to sign up to go to do what? To do their part, they felt. There was a sense of nationalism, a sense of national investment. I would say to you that if a country fixed at a point in time part of a nation that will one day crumble, you say, preacher, you believe that was mentioned nowhere in Bible prophecy. If the young men in that nation and the young women in that nation could feel such a sense of national investment in a wartime effort, why is it that we as believers of an eternal kingdom cannot feel that same sense of investment on the spiritual realm of things? You see, we are in a battle just as they were in a battle. Except our battle, and I don't mean any of this to diminish any sacrifice that anyone has made for their country, but it's just a fact that their effort was in some ways a temporal thing, meaning it was fighting for things, uh, for an, an earthly nation, for an earthly freedom. But you and I as believers, we're fighting for heavenly things. I don't say that to diminish their, uh, their commitment or their sacrifice. I do it. Uh, to emphasize the sacrifice and investment that you and I ought to feel in this spiritual battle that we're in. You see, at the end of the day, the way all of us act and behave affects the spiritual battles that take place around us. We need to understand that whether we like it or not, we're in this fight. We have a stake in this fight. What we do will affect this spiritual battle that we're in. We as a church, there's a spiritual battle. Satan wants to destroy this church. I believe that with my whole heart. If I didn't believe it, I'd resign today. It ought to be Satan has a desire to destroy this church. The only reason he wouldn't have a desire to destroy it is if we're being a help to him. And if we're being a help to him, we ought to want to destroy it. So as I read this passage, it stirs my heart 
as to my individual obligation, not as a pastor, mind you, but as a member of Walridge Baptist Church, that as my army and as this army and as the Lord's army is going forth to war, I have a responsibility in how I'm to act and how I'm to behave. Let me just give you a few truths tonight. I won't keep you very long. I want to say a word about the army. The army. What is an army if we were to define it? An army being the defensive force of any region or any nation or any peoples. But what is it that makes an army? Uh, Certainly, it's not just the uniforms. It's not just the weapons. But there is a substance to an army that must exist and must be there if they are to be successful in fighting. Can I give you three things that I, that I think about when I think of an army? I think of an army as being a group of men that have a common leader, don't you? Having a common leader. Wars aren't fought very well where there's not unity of leadership. Wars are not fought very well. There's always, and uh, of course, the president in some sense, God help us today, is our commander-in-chief. But there's always men underneath him that are truly steering and directing and and controlling what takes place in the army. And there will always be that chief man, that chief decision maker, and the entire army lines up behind that leader, and they are knit together in following that leader. Where you don't have leadership, you have chaos. That's a reality of life. Could I say to you that as believers, we have a common leader, and that leader is Jesus Christ the end of the day, it's all about Him. We might fuss and fight, bicker with one another. Certainly not uncommon in the ranks. But at the end of the day, it's His leadership that we all must bow the knee to. Whether we understand it or not, whether we like it or not, whether we approve of it or not, we must all bow to His leadership if this, if this spiritual battle is to be fought in an effective way. Oh, how it would help a church if we could all just get our eyes on Jesus Christ. So oftentimes, you know, a church is like anything. It's got baggage. Isn't that true? I mean, where you've got people, you've got baggage. That's just the way it is. And, and so oftentimes, the, the little feuds and the little disputes and the little problems can provide so much baggage that it weighs a church down in its efforts to do something for Jesus Christ. Everything that's said, everything that's mentioned, every look that's given, there's always something behind it, or at least the heart would feign that there's something behind it. And sometimes we can get so wrapped up in all of the petty little things. It's ironic to me that churches are seeking unity over doctrine. And yet in their own midst, they're forsaking unity for the sake of pettiness. You say, preacher, are you for unity? Oh, I'm for unity. I'm not for ecumenicalism masquerading as unity. But I'm for unity. I'm for unity in the local church. That doesn't mean we need to feud and fight with every other church. It doesn't mean we can't work together with another church on something if God should lead us to do so. That's a wonderful thing about being independent. What they do don't affect us. What we do don't affect them. And I'm not advocating uh, an attitude of isolationism. That's not what I am advocating tonight. But I'm really saying this. A lot of times, that very crowd that would push us to hold hands and sing Kumbaya at the expense of what we believe and what we hold dear and what the Lord expects of us are the very same crowd that's ready to split over the color of the carpet. That's silly. That's foolishness. And I believe that we as a church, we need to get our eyes on Jesus Christ. He's our common leader. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then He is your leader. And we ought to have our eyes on Him. I think not only a common leader, but I think of a common loyalty. 
I think of a common loyalty. You see, an army is knit together in that they fight for the same cause, for the same purpose. Uh, it's not much of an army if they don't know what they're fighting for. Oh, you can drive men uh, at the end of a whip and they'll fight for you. At, uh, under penalty of death, they might fight for you. But all oh, the armies that fight because there's a cause, because there's a reason. It was said of Napoleon when he was in exile on the island of Elba that one day he was walking about and one of his uh, generals that had been under his uh, emperorship uh, was walking with him and Napoleon looked at him and he said, Who is the greatest leader that has ever lived? And that man knew the right answer, except it was the wrong answer. The right answer, if you wanted to stick around, was what he said. He said, Why you, emperor? And Napoleon smiled and he said, No, sir, not me. He said, the greatest leader is Jesus Christ. That's a true story. Napoleon then said this, For I, men fight for me because I'd kill them if they didn't. But men fight for him because they love him. I can win the kingdom, but he can win the heart. We have a common loyalty. And I'd say that first loyalty is to our Lord. We ought, we ought, to, we ought to be in this thing because we love the Lord because he first loved us. That ought to be preeminent above any other cause, above any other reason. I think it'd be good for all of us. And listen, this don't, this don't help my case as a pastor, by the way, to say this, but it's still biblically true, so I'm going to tell it to you. We ought to, every now and then, all of us ought to check up on why we come through those double doors week after week. Every one of us. See, that don't help my cause as a pastor. If I was, a, if, if I was just trying to tell you something to keep you through the door, I'd say don't ever think about why you come through the doors, just come through the doors. But if we're going to have a church that's healthy and it functions right, then we all have to ask ourselves, why, why did I come through those doors tonight? I think the main reason you ought to come through those doors ought to be that you love Jesus Christ above and beyond anything else. I think our Lord is one of the reasons. I think that armies oftentimes they fight because of their loved ones. Boy, there's nothing. Nobody will fight like a person that's fighting for family. Is that true? Nobody will fight like someone that's fighting for their family. I say this as a husband and a father, that it wouldn't take much. I mean, you could threaten me, you could threaten me, you could threaten me, and I might tolerate it, but now you threaten them, and we're going to have something to talk about. And I believe you feel that way about your family too. And yet the Bible teaches us that we have an adversary walking about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He hates the church. He hates the home. Satan wants your home to be destroyed. He's always hated the home. The first attack that Satan ever made, he did so uh, through an attack on the Word of God. But what he was attacking, because the Word of God can never be destroyed, and Satan knows it can never be destroyed, what he was attacking was the home. The very first home, and Satan tried to attack it and tried to put a division and tried to put discord. I mean, listen, we're, we're literally... I can't, man, I can't say it, I, I can't get it across enough. We're fighting for our families. We're fighting for our wives, for our children. Ladies, you're fighting for your husbands. This is a warfare, and Satan wants to destroy you. And you better get it in your mind that you're going to have to fight for you to be able to save and rescue that family of yours. I think an army fights because of loved ones. But then I think an army fights because of a common way of life. That's most common, isn't it? You often hear people say this, 
They'll talk about maybe a foreign or an international threat and what it would do to our country. And they'll say something like this. It would be the end of life as we know it. I believe that if the president has his way, we will see the end of life as we have known it. You say, oh, that's political, preacher. That's what he said. That's what he said. Don't forget now. He said that he wanted to fundamentally transform America. That means the end of life as we know it. And that's what you're seeing happen. That's what you're seeing happen. When the terrorists flew planes in uh, to the towers on 9-11, what were they trying to do? Were they trying to kill all of us? No, they knew they couldn't do that. They were trying to change life as we know it. Did it happen? I'd say it did. You lost more individual liberty on September, or on September 11th, 2001 than you have ever lost in the history of this nation. In those moments, you lost more personal liberty. And under a Republican, no less. Ooh, I didn't expect many amens. Yeah, you lost more personal liberties at that time. And they succeeded on that day. I don't care if we build a tower on top. I don't care if we build a McDonald's and serve freedom fries from it. They still succeeded that day because the personal liberties that we lost, they changed life as we know it. So I don't know about that preacher. Go try to fly somewhere and find out if they changed life as we know it. You see, one of the things that an army is fighting for is for life as we know it. To preserve the way of life that we're living. Could I say that your quality of life as a Christian is directly under threat and attack by Satan himself? He wants to, he wants to rob you of your joy, rob you of your power, rob you of your peace. He wants to make the Christian life a miserable thing on you. And one of the things that defines an army is their willingness to stand up and say, what we've got is worth fighting for. I believe that the joy of the Lord is worth fighting for. I believe that the peace which passeth all understanding is worth fighting for. I believe that the power from on high that we've received from the Holy Ghost is worth fighting for. We're in a battle. But not only uh, through a uh, common uh, leader and through a common loyalty, but a common adversary. What is it that's been said? The enemy of uh, my enemy has become my friend. And the reality is an army, one of the things that they rally under is that the, they're all wanting to destroy the same person and the same person is wanting to destroy them. You saw this dynamic take place uh, during World War II, didn't you? Uh, what was it that, that finally uh, dragged America uh, into the Second World War? We were content for a while to be left alone, to send some aid, to send some support, but to remain out of the war. But then all of a sudden, the enemy came and knocked on our doorstep. And now we're part of a group of people, and we fought as part of the Allied forces, didn't we? We fought as part of the Allied forces. We didn't fight independently of those other armies. We fought as part of the Allied forces. You know why we joined up with them? Because we had a common enemy. We had a common enemy. And the truth is, in this day that we live in, you and I, we do have a common enemy. Oh, if we could ever understand, if we could ever understand that at the end of the day, it's Satan we're fighting and not one another. And not one another. Who do you think your enemy is? It's not that person next to you. 
It's not that person you've been quarreling with. That's not your enemy. Your enemy is Satan. The powers of darkness. The world. Your flesh. You've got a lot bigger cause to hate what's within you than what's beside you. You see, we have a common enemy. That's what defines this army. Let me say a word about this adversary. Can I do that? Because it's not only the army that's important to notice. It's the adversary. A lot of times the adversary defines the kind of war you fight. Isn't that true? Did we, did we as a nation not fight Vietnam wholly different than we fought World War II? Why? Why did we do that? Because it was an entirely different enemy and adversary. And so he had to be addressed in a different way. Let me, let me quote a verse to you. First Peter 5, 8 says this, and we touched on it a second ago. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Your adversary that hates your family, that hates your church, that you go to, that hates your children, that hates your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews, your brothers, your sisters, your mom, your dad, your adversary, he hates you. He hates you. And that adversary is important to understand. The Bible exhorts us to not be ignorant of his devices, but to know what his strategy and what his plan is. Just back this, we did a whole Sunday night series, a three-part series, on studying the attacks of Satan through his words, through his own words. And as I read that verse in 1 Peter 5, 8, it tells me three things about Satan, three things about him. Can I just real quick give them to you? The first thing is that he's dangerous as a roaring lion. He's dangerous. We live in a day today where we fight wars as though the enemy is no danger to us at all. We fight wars today as though the enemy is no danger at all. Our leadership in this country gets up and makes excuses for our enemies. Those that would seek to destroy and kill us and ruin our way of life. Those that would seek to cross into our borders, to bomb our children, to kill us, to fight us with chemical and, and, and biological warfare, our, our leadership makes excuses for them and talks about how peaceable their religion really is at its core. If you just get to know the right ones. I ain't worried about the right ones. I'm worried about the far right ones. That's, that, that's the leadership that we have. I, I believe that our enemy nationally in this country, I, I, I believe politically that our enemy is a threat. I believe that Islam is a threat to the way of life in America. I believe it's a threat. I believe that the only way they can be exemplary Muslims is by killing us and our children. You say, oh, that's biased. No, that's out of their book. It's out of their book. Anybody that would claim that Islam is a peaceful religion is either ignorant or under a delusion. One of the two. You've either never read what the Koran says or you choose, for political correctness run amok's sake, you choose to not believe that. Our enemy is a danger. But spiritually we have a much more dangerous enemy. The thing that will destroy your family most likely will not be ISIS. It will be Satan. The thing that will destroy this church, more likely than it being radical Islam, more more likely than it be liberalism on steroids, more likely than it be political correctness gone crazy, more likely than any of that, the thing that could destroy this church is Satan and his workings in our midst. So we need to be aware he's a dangerous 
enemy. But I want you to notice not only is he dangerous, but what does it say? It says, walketh about. As a roaring lion walketh about. I'd say he's determined. You know what the word picture is there? And I didn't have to look at any Greek dictionaries to know this. A little common sense go a long way with the King James Bible. You know what the word picture is? He's on the hunt. He's on the prowl. He's walking about. He is, he is determined. Let me ask you something. Do you believe you're as determined as he is? The old preachers used to say that Satan is up and across town before the average believer rolls out of bed and puts one leg in their pants. And the truth is, most of us, most of us, our determination to live for Christ would pale in comparison to Satan's determination to keep us for living, from living for Christ. And the only thing that even remotely balances that, that greatly disproportionate matchup is the sheer grace and mercy of God. He is determined. He has made his mind up. I promise you that his mind is made up a lot more to keep you out of church than your mind is made up to stay in church. His mind is made up a lot more to destroy your family than your mind is to raise your family for Jesus Christ. He is determined. And we need to be keenly aware of. But I would say not only is he determined, I'd say he's deliberate. Deliberate. Seeking whom he may devour. Not just looking for anybody. He's looking for those he may devour. Not everybody is of of a sort that he can devour. But those that can, you're who he's looking for. You're who he's looking for. Those, and you say, who is that? That's the people this commandment was given. When the host goeth forth to war against thine enemies, keep thyself from every wicked thing. Those that are not willing to keep themselves from every wicked thing, you're who he's looking for. Those that are willing, in the midst of the greatest spiritual battle that the church has ever experienced, and when I say the church, I mean the church collective. I don't mean this one individual. But, but the church is in a, a fight for that which is worship, for that which is doctrinally pure, for that which is spiritually correct, for her stand, for her shout. We're in a greater battle today than we have ever been in. And those that are willing to operate under the delusion that it's just business as usual, you're who he's looking for. Those that are willing to say, what I do won't matter. You're who he's looking for. He's deliberate. But let me say a quick word and I'll be done. We've seen the army and we've said a word about the adversary. But let's talk about the advantage. Every war has an advantage, doesn't it? An, an advantage to be won or lost. You could go back through the uh, great battles of history and you would find that many times they hinged on things that seemed entirely trivial at the time. But looking back on, you can go through history and find times when entire wars were affected by the weather that day. Entire wars were affected by just a a, a mile or two's difference in their travel or just an hour or two's difference in their arrival. Times that would have changed entire nations. Why? Because the advantage was lost. The battle was lost. And what does the Bible say of Satan? Paul said this, lest Satan should get an advantage over us. If you get the advantage, you win the battle. How does Satan get an advantage over us? I believe it's through underestimating him. The greatest disadvantage to an army is that of pride. When they underestimate their enemy. The worst thing you can do 
is underestimate your enemy. And I believe there's three things that we have a tendency to underestimate. First, I'd like to say the subtlety of the enemy. We underestimate his subtlety. The Bible says of Satan in Genesis 3, 1, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. And the Bible speaks of, of Satan's devices, of the wiles of the devil. The Bible says that he cometh as an angel of light. He is deceptive at his very core. He's the father of lies, and he's a liar from the beginning. And brother, we need to understand how efficient and effective he is at destroying the lives of believers. We need to understand, you know, he's wrecked better homes than yours or mine. He's wrecked better homes than yours or mine. He's thrown down better men than you or I. Better, wife, better women than your wife or mine. He's, he's gotten a hold of more dedicated children than yours or mine. And we need to understand his subtlety. The thing that defines this battle is not his ability. Not his ability, but it's who has the advantage. Because he has ability, there's no question. But God is able to keep us and deliver us. So the question is, who do we give the advantage to? I believe when we underestimate the subtlety of our enemy. But I believe when we underestimate the significance of our impact. As I've already said, the context of this verse is it's particularly speaking to those that would remain behind. This is particularly speaking to the women and the children. Now, that's not to say it didn't apply to everyone in Israel. It did. But when it says, when the host goeth forth to war against thine enemies, what it's saying is when they're out fighting and you're at home, keep yourself from every wicked thing. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb again. I, told, I did it this morning. I went out on a limb, but that's where the fruit's at. So bear with me. I'm going to go out on a limb again and say this. I think God would prefer us to keep ourselves from every wicked thing at all times, don't you? I believe he would. So why did God say it? Why did God say it? Why did he give this command then? Because God's wanting us to see the particular emphasis on our actions at these critical, pivotal times in church life that especially, could I put it that way to you? Keep yourself from every wicked thing, but especially when the host goeth forth to war against thine enemies. Especially when there's a fight going on. Especially when the enemy's prowling around. Especially when the nation is so vulnerable. Especially at these times. Keep yourselves from every wicked thing. I think about David. I think about David upon that royal balcony at a time when kings went forth to war. The Bible says that he looked from his balcony and he saw Bathsheba bathing upon her rooftop. And he got one of his servants. He said, bring me that woman. And the Bible says he lay with her. And it's interesting to me. The Bible speaks of the repercussions of that. You know, the, the Bible tells us that when, when God judged the nation of Israel for that, that, uh, that David had a choice whether uh, it would be God would, would strike it in, in this way, that way, or against his own family. And I think about the impact that David's actions had. Listen carefully. David's actions from his balcony had a greater impact on that war 
than his comrades' actions from the battlefield. Think about that. David's actions from his balcony had a greater impact than his comrades did on the battlefield. Some of you are thinking, oh, preacher, what I do doesn't matter. Oh, yes, what you do matters. Achan's sin was enough to draw the power of God away from the nation of Israel and to cause them to lose a battle they should have never lost. All because of one man's sin, one man's unrighteousness. And I'm here to tell you tonight that no matter how insignificant you think your actions are, your actions, your attitude, your spiritual life has a direct impact on these folks in this room right here. On me, on the rest of them. And hey, you know what ought to be a sobering thought? If your actions have an effect on my family, they do, by the way. Well, that's why we ought to hold each other accountable. Because, see, your, the, your Christian life is going to affect my family. And guess what? My Christian life is going to affect your family. Your family. This right here, this is a communion. This is a fellowship. This is not an organization. This is an organism. And how you live affects it. Your sin will affect those around you. No man's an island unto himself. It's like tossing a pebble into a lake. The ripples just continue to pour out. And we don't need to underestimate the significance of our impact and our actions on those around us. Husbands, the way you behave affects the spiritual well-being of your wife. If you lead them, most of the time they'll follow. Your, your spiritual life affects them. They are to be led by your example, husbands. Uh, we live in a day where we expect wives to lead themselves because men have stopped leading. God help us. We need to get it through our heads that that's where God, that's our responsibility. God has made us leaders, men. Us the leaders. And it's our responsibility to lead our families. Not uh, as lords, but as leaders. Don't expect your wife to ever raise to a greater spiritual plane than you do, husband. By the same token, wives, it's your responsibility to submit to your husband. Your responsibility. Not his responsibility to make you submit. Your responsibility to submit. Just as it's, husbands, it's not your wife's responsibility to make you lead. It's your responsibility to lead. In the same way, wives, it's not his responsibility to make you submit. It's your responsibility to submit. We need to understand how our spiritual life affects our family. It affects how I live, affects that little lady right over there. And the way that we live affects that little boy. It's that important. It's that serious. And it affects not only them, but a multitude of, of folks that are connected in our lives and our scope of influence. I think we don't need to underestimate the significance of our impact. Let, let me just, just one more, one more, I promise. I don't believe we need to underestimate the seriousness of the threat. Do you know that right now, in these times when we don't think the battle is raging, that's when the battle's won or lost? We could go back and, and look through history, and it's often the preparation during those times before the swords start to clash that define who wins or loses a battle. 
And do you understand that, that right now the decisions that you make in your family, in your home, in your life, that's where the battle is won or lost. If you'll be what God's called you to be, the battle can be won in your family. But if not, all can be lost. Right now, you know, I'm a 20-something, 27. I'm going to be a 30-something soon. <laughs> I'm a 20-something. I'm a young man. I'm a young father. And I'm a young husband. And right now, how I live and how I act and how I behave is determining how that little boy is going to turn out one of these days. One of these days. Some of you are saying, oh, preacher, them years are past. No, you're not mama and daddy now. Now you're papa and grandma. You're papa and mama. And now you have a whole other generation of little eyes watching you. And the way you're living right now, they're watching that. We need to understand how serious this is. No kid goes buck wild on accident. I don't say that to overburden. Anyone that's had a, a, a troubled or a troublesome child, don't say that to overburden you. But I merely say it so that we can understand how serious this threat is. That right now we're deciding what future generations are going to be. Can I, can I just give you a little illustration? The sower. The sower holds the past and the future in his hands, does he not? He's got that which is left from the last generation, that which will become the future generation. He literally holds life and death in his hand. And it all depends on his willingness to sow. One sower that doesn't do his job can destroy an entire crop and an entire generation. And you and I, the way that we live and behave in this time of warfare, can affect an entire generation for Jesus Christ one way or the other. This is a warfare. This is a battle. This is a battle. Are you willing to be who and what you need to be in this battle? Are you willing to take the stand that's necessary? Are you willing, husbands, are you willing to lead? Uh, leading in the right way. Not usurpers, not dictators, but leaders. Not tyrants, but leaders. Wives, if your husband will lead, are you willing to submit? Wives, if your husband won't lead, are you willing to submit? No conditions upon that. doesn't say, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands when you agree with them, when they're not being an idiot. No, at all times. You see, we all have a responsibility in this warfare. We all have a place. We all have a role in this battle. Are we willing to do the right thing?